0: I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind, and this is an exclusive audio podcast edition of our program. I'm delighted to welcome Mark Joseph Stern, who covers courts and the law for Slate. Uh, Welcome, Mark. Thank you so much for having me on. Of course. uh, You, of course, cover the Supreme Court. Uh, You're the author of American Justice 2019, The Roberts Court Arrives. And You chronicle the ongoing dealings of the court every term, but I want to start with an essay you wrote recently, which you can find on slate.com. Why is everyone mad at Elena Kagan? Uh, Elena Kagan, Justice Kagan, has been viewed by liberal judicial experts and the hope of progressive judges as um, being someone who can ultimately persuade some of the more conservative members by looking at originalism and sort of the original interpretations of the constitution. Have you seen any evidence that her approach to jurisprudence has made headway with any of the more conservative judges for them to be open-minded about outcomes of decisions.
1: Yeah, so, um, you know, Justice Kagan is definitely a a brilliant operator. And I don't mean that in a cynical way. I don't mean that she's partisan, but rather that she is willing to make compromises with the conservative justices uh, to try to sort of hold the line, uh, especially on older precedents. So decisions that have been around for a really long time that are very much rooted in our law that now that there's a conservative majority might sort of be in jeopardy. Um, And one great example of this phenomenon happened last year in a decision about uh, judicial deference to federal agencies. You know, conservatives are really skeptical of federal agencies. Uh, They tend to think that they are sort of this bureaucracy that's headless, unconstitutional fourth branch of government that doesn't deserve any kind of deference. Um, And yet, Justice Kagan was able to finagle Chief Justice John Roberts' votes um, to uphold this doctrine that gives these agencies more power. Um, And she did so by really kind of issuing a narrow decision that did weaken that power a little bit, but kept it in place for the most part, and persuaded Roberts that it was more important to keep the law stable, um, to try to protect precedents and give everyone a precedent they can rely on and trust. Um, it it was more important for him to do that than to issue some big sweeping conservative decision that ushered in a revolution. So I think that's where Kagan is at her craftiest and most powerful is when she tries to pick off one or more conservative justices to convince them that, you know, we really don't need this conservative revolution. We can keep the law where it is without making too many sacrifices. Now that that approach does not come without its trade-offs. And it means that, Justice Kagan has also joined some conservative decisions that tend to make her liberal admirers very angry.
0: As you cite in this most recent article, which is a case involving unanimous jury decisions, uh, and how did you find her siding with some conservatives, uh, specifically Alito um, and Gorsuch wrote the opinion for the court Um, And uh, the other liberals joined him. Um, How did you find her perspective here? Is, Is it consistent with an approach that stays true to her values, but wants to show she can be deferential to some conservatives, even in the minority in this case?
1: yeah I think so. Um, and if you just look at this on the surface it 's a pretty befuddling divide because um, like you said it 's a case about whether state jury verdicts have to be unanimous to secure a conviction um, and that I would consider that a sort of civil libertarian issue right uh, and yet the the justices who who said that yes jury verdicts do have to be unanimous to secure conviction uh, didn't break down along the normal partisan line. So you have the three liberal justices, uh, Breyer, Gorsuch, and sorry. So the three liberal justices are Breyer, Sotomayor, and RBG, of course, Justice Ginsburg, joining with justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and Thomas to say that, yes, jury verdicts have to be unanimous. And then you have Kagan joining a dissent by Alito, who is probably the most conservative justice on the court by some metrics, uh, and also joined by Chief Justice Roberts, um, that says, no, these, these jury verdicts can continue to be divided. Uh, people can be convicted by a 10 to 2 vote. Uh, and I think what this dissent was about, and, and I think what Justice Kagan's maneuver here was about, was really all about precedent and when the court has to stand by its old decisions, even when they're wrong. So in 1972, the Supreme Court approved split jury verdicts uh, in in state trials. And it's been 48 years since then, and only two states do this, Oregon and Louisiana, but they've been doing it for 48 years. And there haven't really been any problems. I mean, maybe more people have been convicted, but it's been a pretty smooth system. And what Justice Alito said that Justice Kagan agreed to was, you know, we need a better reason to overturn an old decision than that we don't like it. There has to be some special factor here that justifies overturning uh, an old precedent. um, And and it's just lacking in this case. All that has changed is the composition of the court. And that's not a good enough reason to overturn an old decision. And this is a real bedrock of Justice Kagan's uh, jurisprudence. She has said over and over again, you know, Even if an old decision is wrong, sometimes this court has a duty to stand by it because people have a right to be able to rely on the law. Society has a right to have a stable law of the land, and this court should not go about changing things willy-nilly just because we've decided that we've changed our mind and we don't like this old case law anymore.
0: So this potentially is an avenue for her to be persuadable on something like Roe v. Wade, potentially, um, if there is a swing vote, we don't know if a Roberts or a Kavanaugh might be a swing vote. And wanting to uphold precedent, uh, we don't know the narrowness of future reproductive rights cases. But this is an example of one, or uh, Nixon, the Nixon tapes case, where you know potentially Kagan is showing her cards in a way. Do you know giving due uh, deference to precedent, um, and those are two examples of cases coming up on abortion and on presidential power, where if you were to adhere to precedent, you would come out on the side of, of the liberals.
1: Yeah, I think that I think that's exactly right, um, and I think it's important to note that any time the Supreme Court is talking about precedent on some level it's talking about abortion, right? Because Roe v. Wade uh, was decided in 1973. It has been around for a very long time. Uh, But we know that the conservative justices aren't big fans of Roe v. Wade. They aren't big fans of a constitutional right to abortion access. And so the big question here is uh, whether any of those conservative justices are still willing to provide a fifth vote to uphold Roe and to abide by this precedent, even if they think it was wrong decided. And what Justice Kagan seems to be trying to do here is signal to her conservative colleagues, look, we need to be consistent about this. You guys need to not be hypocrites about precedent. And I am going to sort of lead the way here. You know, other justices may flip back and forth, but I am going to be principled and stand firm on my belief um, that precedent must be respected, except in the most extreme and unusual circumstances. And I think in, in this decision about split jury verdicts, there was a lot of shadow boxing over that because you have Justice Brett Kavanaugh writing this side opinion Basically laying out his own views of precedent that looks a lot like a roadmap for him to overturn Roe v. Wade. You know, basically saying, you know, a lot of this court's best decisions overturned precedent. Brown versus Board of Education overturned precedent, allowing separate but equal rights. And so we need to be open to the possibility that sometimes we need to reverse old cases. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge, Roe v. Wade. And Justice Kagan is sort of responding in a sense, saying, no. That's not how this works. We have a duty to the American people and to the Constitution to stand by these decisions so that people know what the law of the land is, and they know that every time there's a new justice on the Supreme Court, it doesn't mean that everything is suddenly up for grabs.
0: Right, right, Mark. That's helpful. Now, I don't know when we'll be publishing this, but the prediction that you've made, just to... Hold you accountable for your tweeting (laughs) tweeting. (laughs) is uh, I I kid of course is uh, that with respect to this term that um, Roberts um, will join uh, the liberals in um, siding with the United States Congress and and the American people who have demanded um, having access to public Trump financial records. and and that the rest of the docket will lean towards um, the, the conservative bench, um, specifically DACA um, and uh, and the you know other cases on on the docket. Um, so based on your reading of that, you think that the the decision on uh, Trump financial records will Be a 5-4 decision, um, even though, of course, in the Nixon case, there was a supermajority, if not a unanimous bench that, you know, wanted to support um, the public's right to know.
1: Yeah, actually the Nixon's tape case uh, was unanimous, which is kind of a sign of the times uh, then and now that that we're debating whether this will be 5-4 one way or the other, how much the court has changed. Um, I am cautiously optimistic that the Chief Justice will do the right thing uh, on the question of Trump's financial records. Um, and, And I think so because as you just indicated, It's really an easy question um, in light of a lot of these precedents, including the the Nixon tapes case. Um, Trump is asserting this kind of sweeping executive power and privilege to be totally free of congressional oversight and really, I think, imperiling a number of precedents that establish that, yes, Congress does have authority to investigate the president and look into his dealings and try to use that information to craft laws or maybe even impeach. Um, you know, the, these are duties assigned to the Congress in the Constitution. Um, and yet Trump is saying, well, I'm going to deny you the ability to exercise them because basically the president can do anything he wants. It's in Article 2. That's what Trump says. And I think that Roberts has, a, has a, a good head on his shoulders when it comes to this kind of presidential uh, privilege. And, and I think that he is going to be willing to see through this claim of mere absolute immunity and privilege and recognize that this is just a, a regular sort of work-a-day dispute between two branches of government and the court bear- shouldn't even have to be involved. Congress wants to get its hands on these financial records. That's Congress's right. And if Trump doesn't like it, well, I mean, that's just too bad because he doesn't get to run to the Supreme Court and escape from everything he doesn't like. So I think that Roberts will probably end up ruling the right way here. But the other four conservative justices, they have shown a very high tolerance for basically running interference for Trump, for protecting Trump, uh, for, for ruling in favor of the Trump administration. And they don't seem concerned about the optics of any of that. So again, I, I do think it'll likely be 5-4, one way or the other. But I, I think the chief will come down on the right side in the end.
0: And you don't think that Justice Kagan or Chief Justice Roberts Will, will be persuadable enough um, to get either, what you might say, a supermajority or a unanimous decision 7-2-6-3 um, on that case. Because it seems like, just as Speaker Pelosi has talked about wanting a very clear outcome in November, you know, there's always the feeling even though the court is the law of the land that a more decisive decision um, would would have at this moment in our history um, more impact and and more of a durable consequence um, and uh, and and you know to the extent that Trump continues to try to fight subpoenas, even though the Supreme Court has ruled now that He must, or his law firms must comply. um, There there might be some authoritarian gesture at, you know, oh, it's 5-4. I can disrespect the 5-4 decision.
1: Yeah, so, you know, there's kind of a funny story here. Back when the Nixon's tape case was being decided, um, Chief Justice Earl Warren was no longer on the bench at that point. He was actually in the hospital. He was dying. And uh, his friend who was on the bench, Justice Brennan, visited him in the hospital and told him that the court had decided the Nixon tapes case and that it was going to be unanimous. And Warren was uh, extremely happy that the decision was going to be unanimous because he recognized the damage that a split or closely divided decision would do. And uh, the ability that it might give Nixon to try to wiggle out from under it. And I think there's definitely a similar issue here. You know, Trump has displayed very authoritarian tendencies. Um, he has walked right up to the line of disobeying Supreme Court orders in the aftermath of the census case where the court blocked the citizenship question, but he still tried to pursue it. Um, and I think uh, you know it, it would be damaging to the country to have this be only 5-4. And I think there would be a brawl uh, between Trump and the courts. I, I don't think he would go gentle into that good night. So I'm very much hopeful that, that one or more of the other conservative justices signs on. But in light of the census case, which presented a kind of, I think, similar open and shut question of, the president's power to add a a citizenship question to the census and and the president's willingness to lie about it. Um, You know, that was 5-4 as well, and it should have been 9-0. So I I just don't put much faith in the other conservative justices to come down the right way, even if they know it's a lost cause, and even if they know that joining the majority would be the right thing for the country at large. Right.
0: Do you see the census question deliberations being different from this in the eyes of a Kavanaugh or Gorsuch or Alito
1: or Thomas? Well, you know, I think part of the hang up for Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Alito and Thomas in the census case was that the big, big question was, did the Trump administration lie? Um, Did it lie about its reasons for wanting a citizenship question on the census? And there was just a mountain of evidence that, yes, it did, that the real reason it wanted this question was racist and that it tried to paper over that to, to save it in court. And I think that the four conservatives had a real hang up about accusing the president and his associates of lying. And we're not willing to go with Roberts on this really crucial point of saying, you know, this court has a duty to examine the real motives of lawmakers and uh, to actually uphold the law and not just defer to whatever the president is saying. And I think to, to Kavanaugh and Gorsuch and Alito and Thomas, that was uncivil. You know, it was impolite for the court to accuse the administration of lying. And we don't really have a similar kind of issue here. No one's necessarily accusing Trump of lying for his reasons for hiding his financial records. He just doesn't want anyone to see them, including Congress. You know, he said, these are private. These are mine. I'm being harassed. I don't want anyone to see them. And perhaps maybe Kavanaugh or, or maybe even Gorsuch could recognize that, you know, you don't have to call the president a liar to recognize that Congress has the power to investigate him, and that this is not as personal a case in in a way as the census case was, um, and that this is a really sort of uh, cut and dry uh, situation where all you got to do is apply the precedents and you come to an easy result. So, Yeah, there, there have seemed to be at
0: least a few cases that Gorsuch and Kavanaugh have decided so far or have cited in a way that might not be, you know, as precisely as the as the Trump administration wanted, or the Federalist Society. I mean, if the Federalist Society was really adhering to its its original mission statement, there would be like you said, cut and dry, no doubt. This is a 9-0 decision. Congress has the right to subpoena, has the right to have access to these financial records. I mean, the Federalist Society and its original mandate would, if, if Bill Clinton were president, if Barack Obama were president, you know that it's become such a politicized institution to protect Republican political figures that that's not how it's considered. But there have there been any gestures from Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, maybe being the two who would sort of see their reputation on the court besmirched so soon by 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 basically endorsing this this monarchy or this authoritarian model of the unitary executive that maybe they are the target and is there any evidence that from from the decisions that they made or where they've fallen in cases that they've been willing to challenge trump or federalist society dictate
1: so I think that's a great question. I think it's on everyone's mind. It's certainly on mine. Um, There are definitely cases where Kavanaugh and Gorsuch rule in a way that the administration doesn't necessarily like. Uh, So for instance, Gorsuch has voted to strike down some federal criminal laws that the Trump administration uh, wants to preserve. Uh, Kavanaugh has from time to time, he's only been on the bench for uh, you know, a little while, but he's voted uh, against his, his fellow conservatives or some of them to reach a kind of liberal decision. And I think the split jury verdict case is a great example of that, right? Because this is a sort of civil libertarian decision that Kavanaugh signed on to, um, that the Trump administration does not love. But you know, when it comes to the question of executive power, presented squarely on its face, does Trump have the power to do X, Y, or Z, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh always say yes. And this is something that Justice Sotomayor actually pointed out in an instantly famous dissent uh, a, a, a little while ago. She said... This court has a bias toward the Trump administration. Basically, we keep issuing these five to four decisions that say the Trump administration can do whatever it wants. And there seems to be a genuine belief in the conservative bloc that the president is a bit of a monarch. At least Donald Trump is a bit of a monarch. I don't think that the conservative bloc would have viewed Barack Obama the same way. I think there is sadly an element of partisanship here. But the conservatives, especially Kavanaugh and Gorsuch uh, and and Thomas and Alito really do think the court doesn't have any business trying to rein in the president. Um, And that has been made obvious over and over again. And this was, I think, one of the reasons why Trump chose Kavanaugh in the first place. Kavanaugh has a long record on the bench of defending the president's actions and powers. So, you know, again, anything is possible. I would love to be surprised, but I just don't see any of those four as especially gettable on this case. That's really interesting. I, I, you know, I would think that
0: they would understand their reputations in a way that would be more of a historical reference during this period, uh, especially if there is in the fall a commanding um, return to normalcy with respect to executive behavior and function in the White House and that uh, maybe it's it's but a footnote to them and they aren't looking at that bigger picture. I mean, I think if you ask someone like Justice O'Connor about her Bush v. Gore decision or others privately, you know, they, they would have recognized there were certain decisions that would, would have greater consequence than um, others. And, um, and And there are justices within the last twenty five years who had a greater sense of their decisions in a societal and historical perspective now maybe this is being naive, and that those crusaders for strict constructionism um, or the the unmaking of the Warren revolution you know that's how they view their reputation I just it's clear that Alito. And Thomas view themselves in that in that guise. Uh, it's not clear yet, and maybe again, this is naive that Gorsuch and Kavanaugh view themselves that way.
1: Um, I, you know, I think that's a terrific insight, and I think it's quite true, um, at least about about Alito and Thomas. But I fear that Kavanaugh and Gorsuch are similarly ensconced in this Federalist Society milieu. Where they are surrounded by people who have very partisan interests and who will celebrate them only so long as they continue to tow the Federalist Society line, which in recent years has very much become the Republican Party line. I mean, there's simply no daylight between the Federalist Society of 2020 and the GOP. Um, and, and so, you know, we talk about things like epistemic, epistemic closure sometimes, you know, people coming into their own echo chambers and, and cutting themselves off from the outside world. And that's something that I'm really worried about with Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, especially after both of them had very difficult confirmation battles. Kavanaugh's was, of course, traumatic for everyone. Um, And I, I think that after those battles, the the justices tend to sort of crawl back to their own uh, friends and communities and associations and just sort of comfort themselves by hearing praise and don't end up talking to people who might disagree with them or reading normal newspapers like the Washington Post. You know, Clarence Thomas has said that the happiest day of his life was when he canceled his Washington Post subscription. And, And I fear that we see Kavanaugh and Gorsuch going down the same path. Roberts is not on that path, right? Roberts has been all but disavowed by the Federalist Society because of his votes on Obamacare. He's considered a defector. He's considered a traitor. And so he is not tainted with that that same sort of echo chamber issue. He's very much reading the real newspapers and following the American public at large and not just staying in his own little Federalist Society corner.
0: Mark, I want to thank you for your insights today. And just as a closing question, However this term pans out, what do you think will be the most instructive takeaway from the 2020 court, and, and how can the American people respond to that, what, what sort of transpired in 2020, in the way they view the court beyond what, what may or may not be a single term of Donald Trump?
1: Yeah, so I think we need to be on the lookout for just a conservative blowout, a conservative bloodbath. If every single one of these five to four decisions is conservative and on abortion and LGBTQ discrimination and Trump's presidential power and all of this stuff, if the court is just uniformly conservative, I think the American people have a good reason to be worried about, about the legitimacy of the court and to ask whether the court is in Donald Trump's pocket. Um, and whether we need to think long and hard about court reform, whether that means adding seats to the court or barring the court from hearing certain kinds of cases. Um, I think that needs to be on the table if this is just a total conservative bloodbath, because like I said, some of these cases are really cut and dry, and it's a really troubling sign that any of them are going to be divided. Things like the presidential power case should be 9-0. On the other hand, if this, this, uh, this term ends with a bunch of split decisions, and some go one way and some go the other, you know, I think everyone will have reason to be disappointed. But that will indicate that there are still at least five sort of independent justices on this court who are not in the pocket of the administration. And five is all you need. So that will give me a reason for hope, at least a sliver of hope that we still have an independent judiciary and not one that's been totally captured by Donald Trump.
0: Mark Joseph Stern, uh, terrific chronicler of the Supreme Court for Slate Magazine, which you can find, of course, on slate.com. Thanks so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you so much. Appreciate it.